Well, friends, it was my freshman year in college. And there are some things that you do when you're a freshman in college. You go to a party, right? Am I right? You go to a party. Not just any party, a fraternity party. That's what you do. Um, (laughs) And I was not really the partying type back then, but I was like, you know what? I'm going to want to know, like, say that I did this. I want to know what this feels like, right? Um, If I'm missing something, I want to know what I'm missing. So I went to a fraternity party. It was pretty boring. The music was fine. The DJ was not that great. Um, You know, I'll just, you know, I'll chalk it up to some cultural barriers. You know, I'm a kid of the 90s. I grew up in South Central. You better play some Tupac at a party, right? I'm just saying, like, (laughs) they were not doing it. It was a little, you know, I don't know. It wasn't that great. Anyway, it was fine. And, you know, I was 18, and I was like, you know, there's just a bunch of, like, terrible beer around. And I didn't love it. It was not the Divine Nine Asia. It was not. It was not. (laughs) Um... Um, there was some terrible beer around, but everyone was doing it. And I was like, sure, I'll have some beer. Had some. It was terrible. I just left it on the thing because that's what everyone does. You know, they just set it down, forgot about it, whatever. And then, you know, it's interesting because at some point I left the party. Um, that's right. (laughs) I left the party. And then later on, I found out that the party got shut down. Um, and, and, and I'm not sure why exactly, um, but probably had to do with the fact that there was copious amounts of alcohol and young teenagers, uh, which leads to incidents and accidents and situations and the police were called and the party was shut down, right? Um, you know, by the by the looks of some of y'all's responses, some of you know what it's like to be at a party that gets shut down. Um, and I was reading Daniel 5, and I was like, this feels like freshman year. <laughs> this feels like freshman year. Everything's fine. The booze is flowing. And then King Belshazzar is like, hey, I'm going to take it up a notch. And everyone's like, yeah. And then he's like, go get all that stuff from the temple. And everyone's like, yeah. And then they're like, let's drink and worship the gods of gold and silver and bronze and wood and stone. Yeah. And then that party gets shut down. (laughs) It gets shut down. High key, my friends. I wonder, like, and and as I looked at at, at Belshazzar's response, obviously he was not expecting the party to get shut down like this. Like, he was trying to celebrate. He was trying to get crazy. He was trying to get crunk. He was trying to, to go for it. He was trying to be impressive. I'm the king. I'm gonna put on this party. Well, y'all, let's, let's back up for a minute. Let me tell you a little bit of something about Belshazzar. Okay, it says that, you know, we read this passage and we see that Belshazzar, it says that Nebuchadnezzar is his father. But that's not exactly the case in the way that we would understand it. 
Belshazzar's father is Nebuchadnezzar, kind of like in the way that most people refer to Abraham as Father Abraham. Does that make sense? So let me explain to you something. Nebuchadnezzar is a baller, right? Nebuchadnezzar was an empire builder. He was brilliant. He was an excellent, dynamic, dominating king of Babylon. He ruled Babylon, let me make sure I get this right, 44 years. And then he died. And then there were three kings after him that ruled for a combined six years, including one that ruled for a few months, okay? Not so great, not so legendary. Then came Nabonidus. Nabonidus was, was, uh, became king in a coup and was setting up a, a, a glorious reign. Everything was going fine. And then Nabonidus just ghosted. He left. And he said, hey, son, Belshazzar. He didn't even say, hey, son, Belshazzar. You know what? He just left. And so when he left, everyone was like, well, Belshazzar, I guess it's you. <laughs> So Belshazzar is basically the default ruler of Babylon because his daddy ran away. <laughs> okay. Now, I would say that if, if we were describing someone who might not be prepared for the moment of, of being able to rule, that would be Belshazzar. Okay. And we are going to take a look at Belshazzar because you know what? We've been talking about Daniel. And we know that Daniel can interpret visions and dreams. We know that this is something that is sourced in God's power, that is sourced in his relationship with God, that is sourced in his belief that God is going to rescue God's people. We know about Daniel, okay? We're going to take a look at Belshazzar. Because when I saw Belshazzar, my heart kind of stopped a little bit. And I was like, ooh, I'm, I'm, I'm being invited to pause, <laughs> So we're going to pause and look at Belshazzar this morning. And I will submit to you this, that Belshazzar has had a full cup of the Empire Kool-Aid. You know that crazy drink they'd be serving at those parties that's just in a bucket somewhere? He's had a full dose of it, okay? And it's got two ingredients in it. It's got hubris and foolish ignorance. Hubris and foolish ignorance is the empire's little tub of Kool-Aid, okay? I looked up hubris because I was like, you know, this seems like it's what Belshazzar is doing, but I don't really remember what the word means. And then I looked it up on Google and it literally said, in Greek tragedy, excessive pride toward or defiance of the gods leading to nemesis. I was like, this is amazing. That's, that's like literally exactly what Belshazzar does. He goes, he has his servants go to the temple. Actually, go to their cabinet. It's not even the temple. Go over to our storehouse. Go get that stuff, right? This is all intentional. Go get the stuff that we plundered from the Jews. We know who they are. We know they have a God. And we know that we've decided that our God is better. So let's prove it tonight in our drunken revelry. Go get all the gold stuff. Go get all the silver stuff. Is it a cup? Sure. Is it a lampstand? Sure. Doesn't matter. Pour some wine in it and let's drink from it. This is straight hubris. This is not just a party trick, my friends. This is Belshazzar in his hubris declaring in all arrogance, I'm better than all y'all forever and our gods are better than all your gods 
forever. He didn't have to do this. Why don't you just have a party? Just pour some wine, sit around and talk philosophy. No, no, no. Belshazzar has got to get crunk. Belshazzar got to turn it up. Got to be extra. So here they are. They're drinking out of lampstands. They're drinking out of cups. They're drinking out of whatever's made of gold. It is pure hubris. He is saying to the people of God, I own you. You are under my control. He's saying to his people, remember, I have the power, not any other king. And he is saying to, the, to, to Yahweh and to Jehovah, you are weak. You are defeated. That is his hubris. What stood out to me as well, though, is that Belshazzar sees the writing on the wall, right? And he's like, what do I do? And he calls the diviners, the enchanters, the Chaldeans to come. And I'm looking at this like, wait, we just read in these other chapters that Nebuchadnezzar knows who to call. Nebuchadnezzar knows who can interpret dreams. Daniel was elevated to an extremely high place in um, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And you know who else wasn't ignorant of that? The queen. The queen was also not ignorant. She read off this history, that basically the exact same thing that Daniel came and said after the queen said before, hey, uh, Belshazzar, just want to let you know there's a guy that Nebuchadnezzar really loved that could do all this stuff. You should really call him. And I'm like, how does the queen know, but the king doesn't? How does the queen know all this, but Belshazzar not know? This is some foolish ignorance. For some reason, Belshazzar is totally out of the loop. Like I said, the full dose of the party Kool-Aid, hubris and foolish ignorance. You better say that, Will. Um, now, I could spend the rest of this sermon outlining for you all the ways that hubris and foolish ignorance are in operation around us. In fact, I wouldn't have to say a thing. Y'all could fill the chat for days and days with examples of, of, of hubris and foolish ignorance. There are people out here shaming creator by using riches and possessions to show off their status. I mean, look, just like the gold vessels, our country is built on stolen land, inviting other people to enjoy that land and abuse it, and then worshiping money and stuff on the land. It's the same thing, right? There are plenty of people trying to live in foolish ignorance by ignoring history, creating a straw man called the evil critical race theory, and trying to ignore the fact that our country stole land and had slaves and is built on an economy based on theft and exploitation, right? This is, I think, obvious to many people. Hubris and foolish ignorance are all around us. But because they are all around us, we do have to submit to the fact that they also might be operating in us. <laughs> we do also have to submit to the fact that the temptation to operate in those things is upon us at any moment. 
And this is where I had pause when I read this story. Because it would be easy for me to point out there and to point out that hubris out there and that foolish ignorance over there. But I just kept getting sobered by the ways that I know in my spirit I am absolutely tempted to operate in these dynamics in my own existence. You see, I grew up in a family that by the time I was born was divorced. And some of y'all know this, but the kids of divorced parents almost always believe that it was their fault that the divorce happened. Almost always. And not many people did a good job telling me that it wasn't my fault. So I thought it was my fault. I literally told my mom it was my fault. And when my dad was tired of the partial custody that he had, he ran away. And I thought that was my fault as well. Loneliness and an abandonment are sewn into my story. Okay. Add another layer. Like I told y'all, I grew up in South Central in the 90s. Okay. I was well on my way to becoming a statistic. There is a marker. For those of you that are in education, you probably have heard this. There's a marker around third grade for black boys, okay? If we can't read by third grade, the likelihood that we're going to jail is high. My mom was a teacher, so she made sure I could read by the time I was five. <laughs> and she made sure I behaved well in public all the time. And she tried to make sure that I would never be caught in anything that would result in me becoming a statistic. I was a kid under intense pressure to perform and represent. Loneliness and abandonment were written into my story. And over time, I learned that if I would be impressive, if I could do things that people liked, if I could make people clap, then maybe it would make me feel less lonely and more abandoned. And usually, to be honest, it didn't work because no matter how much praise I got, I still felt alone. I was impressive, but loneliness and abandonment were written into my bones. Now, I don't sort of consider myself a person who would choose hubris or foolish ignorance easily. But knowing that loneliness and abandonment are written into my story, these choices become a little bit easier for me than one may think, right? I think about being that black kid growing up in the 90s, growing up in South Los Angeles. I have extensive training in trying to be as impressive as possible in order to avoid feeling lonely and being abandoned. Can you imagine how abandoned Belshazzar felt? His dad just ran away. Could you consider for a moment 
that in the environment in which he existed with all the power and glory and money and authority at his disposal that he might also do whatever he could do to to escape that feeling of being abandoned because he was literally abandoned by his father. You see, I am sobered. I don't want my interpersonal interactions to be opportunities to satisfy my loneliness. I don't want people that know me or that love me to think that their value in my life is purely based on how I see them in my trauma narrative. I want people to know that they are valued for who they are, not for what they bring me. Not for how they satisfy the gaping hole in my own story. So you see, hubris is not simply for the tyrannical. <laughs> it is for the abandoned. Because we just don't want to feel like we're alone. And look, I think... I think that, that when I think about the foolish ignorance that Belshazzar kind of employs, it seems interesting to me because look, I'm not ignorant about racism. I'm not ignorant about white supremacy. I'm not ignorant about misogyny. But you know what? Here's how foolish ignorance shows up in my own life. When I sort of create a narrative about who I am exclusively sourced in my trauma and exclusively sourced in my failures. And I allow for my failures to be the defining feature of how I see things and where I come from. Then I will forget God a hundred percent. I will forget God because I will forget where God has brought me from. I will forget the things that God has given. I will forget the way that God's people have come around me. If my narrative is only shaped by my failures and by what other people have told me are my failures, I will forget that God is with me. You see, as a partner, as a um, parent, as a pastor, Belshazzar is sobering to me. This tale is sobering to me. I could on some level try to just say, what a tyrant. But I know that these dynamics are available to me because we live in a space where the empire threatens to con threatens us and says conform or else. Use power like this or else. Make sure that people like you or else. Lest I um, kind of leave us there, I will tell you that I'm trying to do three things in my life. I will submit these to you basically as generalities, but not as prescriptive, just to let you know that I'm trying to not be Belshazzar and an invitation for us to not be Belshazzar. <laughs> Number one, I am uh, building my therapeutic community. 
I just found a spiritual director that feels like my auntie. She just feels like my auntie. She reads my life for filth, tells me that I'm, that I'm glorious and does it all in between. We need therapeutic community, friends. We need people who see us for who we actually are, who will actually tell us that, who will actually call us in, call us to God, call us to honesty, right? Number two, the contemplative practices that we do as a church, they are good news to me. Because when I sit in silence, what I'm actually choosing is to say, I will not be impressive for the sake of trying to garner people's approval or God's approval. I will be in silence. Silence is praise to God because God is honored by me being present to God. God is honored when I show up. Not when I show up, not just when I show up to do things. And to be clear, I do think that faith without works is dead. However, the first work is to show up. <laughs> the first work is to just be honest, come as you. And then the last thing that has helped me tremendously is to Sabbath. Again, as a more embodied way to say, this work does not define me. Y'all, I love being a pastor more than you know. But on Friday, I'm not your pastor, okay? I'm just gonna tell you right now on Friday, I'm not your pastor. On Friday, I'm gonna go and get breakfast, either my breakfast burrito or my three pancakes and my bacon and my scrambled eggs. I'm gonna sit around, I'm gonna watch some TV and I'm gonna play a lot of music. That's who I am on Friday. I'm gonna hang out with my kids. We're gonna go to the food trucks. I'm not your pastor on Friday. <laughs> this is very important to me and to you <laughs> because I don't want for this work that I love to do to be caught up in the dysfunction of me trying to seek approval from the place essentially of trying to satisfy my loneliness. Friends, what would it be like for us to know and recognize the way that we are tempted to hubris the ways that we are tempted to foolish ignorance? And what would it be like for us to decline these temptations by saying yes to resting in who God has made us to be, how God wants us to be? Belshazzar is a sobering moment of pause. Yes, the tyrants rage, my friends. The tyrants rage and evil is real. And still, even as much as we are uh, victims of that, we can also easily end up with those weapons in our hands. And so this morning, my invitation to you is to lay them down. Lay down the hubris lay down the foolish ignorance, come to God as you are, know that God is pleased with you, allow for God to lead you, amen.